Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we're humbled this morning to enter Your presence as we pause and remember the price that was paid to earn our passage there. We bind ourselves together, Lord Jesus, on the ground of Christ's finished work. There is no other reason to give meaning to this event, but in You, dear Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we have sufficient Sufficient reason to gather not just this day, but every Lord's day, every morning and evening, every moment you grant us that opportunity to think about, to ponder, to consider, to meditate on our salvation, to read your word, to memorize the scripture, to share the good news of our salvation with a friend, a colleague, a co-worker, a family member. Father, we are overwhelmed this morning as we pause and consider once again the grateful heart that we should have, each one of us, when we consider the purchasing price of these moments together. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, whose blood was shed for our redemption. I pray as we open the pages of your declared and revealed, your immutable, your sufficient word, that you would write these precepts and principles, these promises, these commandments, write them, O Lord, on the table of our heart. May we be conformed to their standard. May we adopt, Lord Jesus, the righteousness and the kingdom values that you proclaim now as worthy worship before you. May you complete, Lord Jesus, the work you've begun in us by degrees each day that we might look more like our Lord Jesus Christ as a result of gathering and worshiping this morning. Lord, if any of these prayers are answered, it will be because the Holy Spirit worked in spite of fallible, frail, fallen individuals, Lord, individuals who have only anything to say in as much as you have already said it, and the Holy Spirit is pleased to use us, use me as a vessel. We thank you for this time. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand. Turn with me to Matthew 15, if you would. I'm so thankful that the Lord has given us this opportunity this morning to worship Him and also to spend time in His Word. Turn with me to chapter 15. In a moment, we'll read verses 1 through 9. As you're turning there, the title of this message is Clarified by Conflict. Clarified by Conflict. There were certain truths that were clarified by the conflict and the contrast that the Pharisees offered Jesus Christ in these altercations and these moments where Jesus is clashing with the naysayers and his detractors. There are certain things that are recorded all throughout the book of Matthew that come to the fore. And so this morning, we will endeavor to learn a few of them as they're recorded here in Matthew 15. So stand with me, if you would, with your word open. And we'll read verses 1 through 9. Follow me as I read. Matthew 15, 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. 
So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In the providence of God, even in the record of the Gospels, it is evident that these interactions are on purpose. God has sovereignly ordered these interactions to bring to the forefront things that we otherwise would not be privy to. I find it an amazing observation that both in the times where Jesus was interacting with people in a loving and a compassionate and affirming way and a faith-filled response from the believers, and also in the times when he was crucified, rejected, mocked, scorned, and ultimately killed in every moment of the Gospels, every one of those interactions is deep and rich with Gospel purpose. And so the question then is today, what is the Gospel purpose of this interaction, this record that we've just read, where Jesus finds himself once again arguing with the Pharisees, the Pharisees who had a bone to pick with the Lord of glory, who rejected Him as the Messiah, who indeed called Him a blasphemer. The Pharisees who stood in stark contrast with the humble crowds who recognized His miracle-working power and spun the events that they were witnessing to say something like, this man is no spirit-led individual. This man is no Messiah. This man casts out demons by the prince of demon, Beelzebul himself. How could it be in a congregation of relatively similar people, born at the same time, born under the old Mosaic Covenant, born at a time when the Jews were bound together by some political common ground and factors, that you would have such a disparity of responses. People who hated Christ and people who left their nets, their livelihood, and even their family and said, I will follow you, Master, wherever you go. How could it be that there was such a disparity there? Well, certainly we're seeing worn on the sleeve. We learn at least this much. We see worn on the sleeve in the reaction of the people a heart condition. A heart condition that in the case of the Pharisees lie totally outside of the place it needed to be. Fallow ground, untilled, hard-hearted, stoniness. The heart condition that every one of us in our sin is familiar with. The heart condition that only can be changed by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit to soften the soil of our soul as Jesus had already declared in parable form to receive the Word of God. But here it was the hard soil of the Pharisees' preconceived notions and conditions of their heart. Here it was the thorns and cares of life of holding on to their own influence and authority. Here it was those stones beneath the surface of the soil of their heart or any manner of the three that prevented the Word of God from penetrating to any degree where they might confess their own sin and place faith in the Lord of glory. The providence of God evident in the gospel revelation is not just evident in the progressive affirmation of Christ's followers, which itself provides clarity for the readers. We mentioned last week that those six moments that we chose all the way through the gospel to its halfway point where Christ has been recognized by the onlookers so far as superior in religious authority. When the crowds are astonished and they see He speaks 
not as one of their scribes, but as one who has intrinsic authority. We've also seen when the seas were calm, when Christ stood up in the boat and had a simple word, the elements of nature obeyed Him, that He was sovereign over creation. And He was recognized as such by His disciples. He was recognized as Savior of the soul when He told the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven you. The Pharisees were angered, but as He healed the man, those who were soft of heart and recognized Christ's work there saw that this man who has the power to heal the lame Leg and the lame arm has the power to heal the lame soul. And they were afraid at this revelation because they knew God alone had the power of forgiveness. And they were watching not just a man, not just the Son of Man, but the Son of God. And later we see the affirmation of the worshipful disciples when He walks across the sea to them during that second storm that He indeed in their eyes and in their heart and their confession at that moment was the Son of God deserving of worship, but not before he was also affirmed as singular in history and son of David. So that's the progressive recognition of soft hearts that we see in the gospel. But there's also a progressive hardening of anger and offense by those who are not predisposed to receive the word of the kingdom represented in the Pharisees. So what can we learn here? We focused last week more on the positive but this week we'll venture to, to propose that the occasion of conflict in Matthew, again as he records it, sheds light on the dynamics of Christ's kingdom and his authority against the backdrop of any imposters. And that's exactly what we see here. The Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, they were imposter authorities and Christ called them out as such. And we'll see that throughout the gospel, especially as we get towards the end. We'll touch on it briefly this morning, but we certainly see it here in the center as well. The applications of these exchanges, these interchanges, they scream from the pages of Scripture. And as we close this message later, I'll venture a few. The application of these kind of interactions scream with relevance from the pages of Scripture because insofar as there are imposter authorities today, just like there were imposter authorities then, we need to realize how the authority of Christ will interact with the naysayers in such a way that will close every mouth and deliver judgment and a a word that hits directly at the heart of the rebellion and hopefully leading the person in their obstinate rebellion to repentance, but if not, to call them out as the wolf that they are. Consider this question, who says? It's a common question for us, a child, at least I remember saying that a lot growing up, who says? The question, who says, begs the question of authority. Go clean your room, my brother or my sister would tell me. Who says? The implication being, if that was just my sister saying, you should clean your room, there's no way I'm going to listen. But if it was the word from my father, who kept a large belt in his closet, partly for holding up pants and partly for disciplining his son, then when I heard the word, who says, and the an- when I heard the answer to the question, who says, it was, dad said or else, I got about the business of cleaning my room much faster. When the question of who says occurs in the context of the scriptures, in the context of the human heart, the worst place that we can find ourselves is a place of unbelief where if the answer to the who says question is Christ and Christ alone, we still don't listen. And if we find ourselves in that position, we find ourselves with the Pharisees 
imposter authorities or believing in or playing, placing confidence in imposter authorities. I would listen if culture says. I would listen if tradition says. I would listen if the collection of my best friends said or if convenience says. But if it's Christ, I'm not going to listen. Because there are authorities who rise to a higher standard of motive force for me. The question of who says is often answered by a hundred different impostors, a thousand different impostors in our context today, just as the Pharisees answered that question with the wrong authority. Thus, we can analyze and apply this section of Scripture to every decision in our lives. Because every decision that we make has at least an implicit because attached to it. I'm doing this because blah, 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 and you fill in the blank. If the end of the because statement is not Christ says so in His holy, immutable Word, if it's something else, something less, and something that cannot be subsumed under that, then we must repent. Because attached to our practical ethics is a false idea of authority, and something that's moving us to make a decision that is not worship of Christ and Christ alone at all, but anything else that might stand in competition of Him. Thus, Matthew 15 reminds us how important the placement of God's commands are related to our reasons for everything. If we have a true desire to worship God, we will have a true desire to love, to know to meditate, marinate, saturate, and apply His commands. The psalmist says as much and Christ echoes as much. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. He's already declared to us in the great first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. We've discussed the elements of kingdom. Sovereign, subject, realm, and law. Seek ye first the terms of the kingdom of God. What does the sovereign's law require of you as his subject and his righteousness? And all these things, secondary things, will be added unto you. A heading for you. Three major points this morning I hope we can draw from this text. Three kingdom reference points clarified by conflict with the Pharisees here. Three kingdom reference points clarified by conflict. (coughs) First of all, related to setting. Capital city and covenant ultimatum. It's important here in the context of the scripture and also in the reference from Isaiah, the note of setting where the Pharisees came from. Chapter 15, verse 1. And Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said the following. I'm going to argue that the from Jerusalem has significance and contextual importance. The setting of the place where the, the seat, if you will, of the Pharisees where they resided and where their authority was stemming from, as it were, represented in Jerusalem, the capital city and a covenant ultimatum. We'll learn in the greater context here how important that is in the due course of the gospel and hopefully briefly this morning. Secondly, standard. Not only the reference point of setting, but standard, the commandment of God. What is the standard of righteousness? What is the ultimate norm? Who is, who has the last word? Who is the ultimate Whose answer to who says? And then thirdly, substitute. And you see that phrase, for the sake of. In verse 3, for instance, he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
They were acting for the sake of something else, something less than Christ, something less than God's Word for the sake of, in light of, a different authority. What are some of these substitutes? What were the substitutes here? Jesus refers to them as the commandments of men. So back to our first point setting, capital city and covenant ultimatum. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 29. We'll reference Isaiah 29 three times in the course of this message as Christ himself references it here. And as is common, when Jesus refers to several scriptures from the Old Covenant, when you see the context in which those scriptures are situated, it can add a whole lot of weight and contextual meaning to the rest of his discourse, and I think this is no exception. Before we turn directly to Isaiah 29, let me briefly make another point, and that is Jerusalem politics versus wilderness prophet. Who is Jesus talking to here? Who did he appear as to them and their eyes and maybe the onlookers as well? Well, there was an altercation between authorities in the religious order, the Pharisees and the scribes, and this other wild-eyed prophet, uh, unassuming in dress, who had risen to prominence and popularity, yes, doing mighty works, declaring authoritative things, but from, in their cultural context, relative or perhaps extreme, obscurity. Jesus had come to influence and prominence not by the culturally ordained means. He was not the famous, gifted, genius, son or follower, disciple of such and such respected scribe. He was not the person born, obviously so, to a family of rich import in the area. Although he had a lineage claimed to the throne of David and indeed was in the line of Christ, this was an individual who was born in a stable because there was no room in the inn. This is an individual who was not marked with all the typical physical outward signs of kingly rule or authority. Jesus Christ operated on different terms. It was the weight of his words and it was the testimony of power that were his badge of authenticity. Jesus Christ says, listen to me, I speak by my own authority, verily I say unto you, and he says, I am the Messiah, I have power to forgive sins, even as I touch this paralytic man, command him to rise, and he takes up his bed and walks away. These evidences of Jesus' authority were not what people A lot of people were programmed to look for, and especially the Pharisees and the scribes. They were ones who had the coveted place of occupying the system of authority at the time, the politics and the visible influence over the people. Perhaps they were great influential speakers. They were naturally gifted leaders. Perhaps they were talented. Perhaps they were indeed pious in a legalistic sense. Perhaps they had wealth and acclaim. Perhaps they had a way with words. For whatever reason, these men clashed with Jesus because their authority was garnered by different reference points, by different claims than Christ alone. On the one hand, you had the politics of Jerusalem and these religious sects represented by the Pharisees and the scribes. On the other hand, you had a spectacular advent of a wilderness prophet speaking with authority, and working signs and miracles. As far as the Pharisees and scribes were concerned, 
This was a kind of rubber stamp authority. Their cultural office, perhaps their popularity, they represented Israel's best hope in, in many people's eyes for preserving their culture, their influence, their privilege, their ethnicity, and any number of these things might have been what they relied upon or what they were granted by those who followed them as legitimate authority claims. But Christ was totally different. This prophet's claims were, self were his self-attesting word and the application of the word and the power of God by the Spirit working through him doing miracles, recreations, raising from the dead, water into wine, deaf and dumb men seeing or speaking and hearing, blind men seeing, demonically demonic possessed people, demon-possessed people, set free by a word of his power. So there was a clash here. In this area and in this era, the capital city politics, the Jerusalem claims to authority, met their match. And ultimately, there would be a covenant ultimatum issued because they had mismanaged their position. But isn't this the way and the pattern that we see throughout all of Scripture? When God sets His favor upon an individual and calls him to a place of prominence and influence, does He do it through the human prescribed means very often of a king who is naturally head and shoulders above the rest and has a certain command and gravitas and presence about him? Israel wanted a king and they were given one who was anointed and he fell into that category. His name was Saul. And this man did a great disservice to the kingdom of God at that time and led the people astray. And his authority claims proved to be illegitimate because he did not stand on the Lord and on his word and on his law. But instead he abused his position. He took advantage of and he exploited the good favor and the trust of the people for self-aggrandizement and personal gain. He felt that he, in his position of prominence, was free to do anything. Pretty soon Saul forgot about the fear of the Lord and the authority over him, and he began to serve and act as his own authority and his own God, paying little or no regard to the word of God that had come through the book of Deuteronomy that said, you may have a king and set him over you, but may he not be of this sort. The sort that would collect for himself every reason to be self-affirming and self-aggrandizing. You must be humble before the Lord. Saul was not that way. But the king, to follow, the king to follow him was different. David was a shepherd boy, least among even his brothers, because he was the youngest, least likely to be appointed to a position of prominence even in his family, let alone king of this whole nation and region, God's favored people. But David was anointed by God, called from the wilderness, given a word, given a gift. And he did, though not sinless by any stretch of the imagination, relatively speaking, he served humbly and faithfully before the Lord as a man after his own heart. Same with Moses. Moses, yes, he was born as a child of privilege, but God exiled him for a season to prepare him for that prominence. So out of wilderness, the wilderness, a prophet arises. And time and again, we see this pattern in Scripture because God is more glorified in most cases by taking the weak and foolish, as Paul himself writes, and raising them to a position of prominence because they are far more likely to be seen as representing Christ alone and not themselves. So this is what this setting represents. 
where the establishment of Jerusalem meets the wilderness prophet. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Turn with me to Isaiah 29. In the record, in the narrative of Matthew's gospel, the state that Jerusalem represents in its apostasy and in the mismanagement of the covenant of God is leading up to a point where Christ himself would proclaim judgment over the city and over the people that are aligned with the kind of authority and kind of false hope that the scribes and Pharisees represent. This was not a unique condition, though. Israel had found herself in this position before. When Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, he's quoting from a context that includes these verses, 1 through 8. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Ariel is a symbolic name for Jerusalem, a poetic name, description for that city of prominence and that geographic center of covenant as it was, as it were. Add year to year, let the feast run their round, yet I will distress Ariel. That is, I will distress Jerusalem. Verse 2, there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And camp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers. And I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low from the earth. You shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground, like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be made like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire, and the multitudes of all nations that fight against Ariel, remember Jerusalem, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night." Here is described judgment of unimaginable proportions. Take your worst nightmare, the prophet is saying. That's what's going to happen to you, O Ariel. Ariel, city, society, deserving of judgment. This lament is a historical reference that is in the context of Jesus' quotes, which come from verse 13 in this same chapter. Later, Jesus will pronounce in His own power and authority By his own prophetic word, seven woes over the Pharisees that will culminate in a judgment over Jerusalem. But this pattern he's using from the Old Testament, and we see the continuity of God's word. When his people reject and forget him, they stand in discontinuity with the covenant and are deserving of judgment lest they repent. And it is a tragic day When God's loving kindness, when His steadfast love finds its limits at His justice and He intervenes with sword and with fire and with occupying forces and with armies that crush in a moment that gleaming city of inspiration and providence and prominence. Ariel is literally a victorious lion. It's a beast of majesty and of dominance that's pictured there but there's a tragic irony here even though there are these forces that claim to be like a victorious line and for a period of time they rise to prominence and certainly the pharisees and the sadducees had that kind of influence they were the lions they would lionize and move forward the jews and 
preserve and represent hope for their future. Yet when that victorious lion became self-worshipping and self-important, that lion is reduced to nothing. And in spite of that popular opinion that they had, in spite of that position of privilege that they once occupied, they stand judgment-worthy. And a lion is reduced to ashes by one thunderbolt of Christ's authoritative word. At the snap of the fingers of God's judgment, what has been a ferocious and imposing force in this world is reduced to nothing. We see this picture throughout scripture, the Scriptures, even in the visions of Daniel, where authorities that rise to positions of prominence are often pictured like a lion, even maybe a cat with wings, as an aggressive beast, intimidating. They're destroyed by the hand of God if they do not serve at His pleasure, do not bow before Him. So this aerial lament, this Jerusalem lament from Isaiah 29, 1-8, carries with it connotations of tragic irony, What has been a victorious lion will be reduced to nothing. Secondly, there's a prophetic clash. There's a clash of authorities and it's a foreshadow in Isaiah 29 of the state that Jerusalem was in at the time when Jesus was speaking. There would come judgment on the city for what they had done to Christ. For their unrepentant rejection of the Messiah, Jerusalem, just like Isaiah prophesied at this time of exile, would once again be surrounded by armies. And Christ's prophecy, if not one stone left upon the other, would come to fruition in the eyes of the onlookers, those who weren't slaughtered by the invading hordes in A.D. 70. Just a few short decades at the close of Christ's ministry, He would be proven authoritative in a thousand ways, indeed innumerable ways, and one of them would be a physical, present, imminent judgment on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Jerusalem herself. Also, we see Shade's prophetic significance in this Jerusalem or aerial lament in that these unambiguous consequences were decisive, devastating, and dramatic. We see as we continue to read in that section in Isaiah 29 that the destruction will be so swift that it's compared to an earthquake which earthquake which reduces to rubble a building that took maybe hundreds of years to construct it can we continue in verse 8 as when a hungry man dreams he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied i was full last night i'm ready for breakfast in the morning and that's how swiftly god can reduce a false authority claim to rubble or as when as we continue to read a thirsty man dreams he is drinking and awakes faint with with his thirst not quenched. I thought I was satisfied. I thought I had hope for the future. And in a moment, my life was taken and everything I placed my faith in was destroyed. How many of us can appreciate these kinds of moments? So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. And so it continues. I mentioned that Christ Himself laments Jerusalem just like Isaiah does in chapter 29. Uh, Fast forward with me a little bit in Matthew's Gospel to chapter 23 for a moment. And in this section, there's woes pronounced on the Pharisees. Remember, this was the authority figures that He was clashing with in 15. 
And there's also woes pronounced on Jerusalem. But just briefly overviewing through this chapter, let me hit on a few highlights. First of all, verse 1 and 2. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So you see an indictment for hypocrisy, but you also see that there was a legitimate seat of authority that in part the Pharisees and the scribes had filled. They were called to represent accurately and adjudicate faithfully the law of Moses. But like the judges of old, they took bribes and they perverted justice. They were hypocritical and thus they had lost their moral authority. And thus they were pronounced by Christ There was judgment pronounced upon them, and then we begin to see this catalog of seven woes. Verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, verse 15, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, verse 16. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, again, hypocrites, verse 23 forgetting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Woe to you, verse 25, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, whitewashing the outside, the inside is horrible. Woe to you, 27, this is the reference to whitewashed tombs, outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones. And woe to you, again, verse 29, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you built the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we'd have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Jesus concludes this section of judgment by saying, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, again, echoes from Isaiah, now fast-forwarding through history, Ariel, Ariel, that city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 24, 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one, not be left here one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. This point was capital city and covenant ultimatum. The strongest and most secure, most impressive, most powerful, influential, and authoritative constructs of man are reduced in a moment if they do not stand on Christ. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you're born, if you consider yourself a person of privilege, if you do not come to the cross and to God's law as a humble sinner and say, in light of this standard, I have fallen short. I am not worthy to be called an authority on you. Only change my heart. Only then can you occupy that seat of authority with any credibility, any legitimacy. And because the Pharisees advertised themselves, showed themselves to be hypocrites, rather than broken and repentant sinners, they and all Jerusalem, as Christ prophesied, would come under this covenant ultimatum, repent or be 
destroyed. And so will everyone who has ever lived one day. Repent or be destroyed. You have used your life to serve yourself and your life was granted to you as an undeserving gift by the Lord, the Creator, the Lord of glory. Bow to Him. Confess that He is your all in all and you serve at His pleasure. And before Him and Him alone do you find hope, healing, salvation, security because He is the ultimate and only authority over the universe. On an individual level and on an institutional level, there's a clash of authorities that we see here in chapter 15. And it doesn't matter how impressive they are to men, a covenant ultimatum will be issued if we do not bow to Jesus Christ. Three kingdom reference points clarified by conflict. Number one, the setting is important. It brings us along with the context of word of God before it and word after it. It brings us this sense that there is going to come a covenant lawsuit, if you will, against this people represented by these authorities if they do not repent. And this is in part why Jesus' language is so sharp and direct and strong. If there's a repentant prostitute, she is welcomed with loving kindness. But if there is a hypocritical authority figure, he is excoriated by Christ because his heart does not stand in the appropriate place before the Lord of glory. Number two, another kingdom reference points clarified in this conflict in Matthew 15, 1 through 9, and that would be standard, the commandment of God. What is the standard? Is it tradition? Is it what the Pharisees presume it to be that had been given to them by the elders? Or is it the word of God and His commands on their own merits with nothing added to or subtracted from? Verse 3, he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded. And Jesus cites from Exodus twenty twelve here, from the Ten Commandments, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. And here we see an example of a false commandment that the tradition and elders were promoting. Verse 5, but you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you have will be gained from me is what you have gained from me is given to God. Indeed, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God. So we see here these reference points that Christ's language is using to elevate and to emphasize the standard, the commandment of God in verse three. For God commanded, verse four. And he's returning to the written word of God in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. Also, he says, uh, the commandment of God for God commandment. And he says, you have made void the word of God. Word of God, God's commandment, the commandment of God, and so on. These are the reference points that represent in Christ's instruction here, the actual standard. The standard of truth, the universal norm. The law by which there is no higher is the commandment of God. What God has spoken, what God has delivered, what God has decreed as an extension of His holiness and character immutably and always, forever and ever stands as the commandment, the standard, unabrogated, unalterable, undeniable, inescapable. The standard is 
the commandment of God. Turn back with me again to Isaiah 29. As Jesus references this prophet in this section, we find again in the context that Isaiah, in this same chapter, is calling the city of Jerusalem, calling this people to repentance by that standard, the commandment of God. Notice as he closes his oracle of judgment with more hope in verse 17 through 24. It is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and a fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In, the day, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a, bo- of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. I love that. The de- in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. What's Isaiah referencing there? The standard, the universal norm, the commandment of God, His kingdom and His righteousness. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, verse 19. The poor among mankind shall exalt in who? The Holy One of Israel. Who is the Holy One? The one that is set apart in and of Himself is righteousness, is glorified, is the only one deserving of a place, uh, exalted and magnified status among all peoples. Verse 20, For the ruthless shall come to nothing, scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by word make a man out of an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. You see the abuse of righteousness in that example. But then it says further, verse 22, Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. What does repentance look like for a Pharisee or for anyone who holds to a false authority claim? It looks like those who are astray coming to understanding and those who are murmuring, complaining. They had an attitude of offense just like the Pharisees did to Christ against the Lord. They accept instruction. What instruction? The commandment of the Lord, the book, the word of God. And what do they do upon receiving it? They sanctify His name. What does that mean? They glorify Him. They announce Him. They herald Him. And they triumph Him as the King of kings. The one who has the last word. And what do they do and worship before Him? And what is the position and attitude, the posture of their soul? They, in the end of verse 23, stand in awe of the God of Israel. This was the position of the heart that was not evident in the Pharisees and why Jesus spoke so harshly to them. Conversely, when the disciples, after the storm had been calmed and Peter had been rescued from sinking, when they worshipped the Lord and said, truly, you are the Son of God, or when Peter sanctified the Holy One of Jacob when he said upon Jesus' inquiry, you are the Son of God. These were the examples in the Gospels of those who stood corrected by and inspired by and moved to worship and faithfulness and glory by the standard and the commandment of God. 
We see that all the way through the gospel. And to the end, the last word is, again, as we've mentioned multiple times in this study, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them in whatever I have commanded you. What are we to teach? The book, the word, that we are to sanctify and to move others and call them to sanctify the Holy One of Israel, to set Him apart, to exalt Him, to give Him His just dues and worship, to magnify, to stand in awe, lest we go astray in spirit without understanding, or lest we murmur because we are devoid of wisdom and instruction. We are to embrace the standard of Christ's name above every name and to sanctify it as holy. Secondly, we learn from this reference point, clarified by conflict, that the moral law of God stands. It is not abrogated, which is to say an authority says it does not apply anymore. It's passe, it's, it, it's gone, it do, doesn't hold sway over us. In Matthew 15, this is not the case as Christ refers to the moral law in his own instruction by saying, God commanded, verse 4, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Then he says, as opposed to that, but you say if anyone tells his father and so on, finds a way to weasel his way around it, changes it, spins it, manipulates the word of God, they are the ones who stand in need of change. They are the hypocrites, the ones who do not measure up according to the standard, but the ones who love the law of God has submitted to the authority that it represents and trust Christ alone, ultimately, imputed law-keeping righteousness to be judged wholly before Him. They are the ones who say, honor your father and your mother or you will not live long, it will not go well with you, and you will not prosper. The apostle repeats this, Paul, of course, in Ephesians 6, saying it's the first commandment with promise. And in the course of that epistolary construction, we see that it is the worship and the faithfulness that the church of Ephesus is called to after they've realized the theological glory of their right standing with the Lord. Once they are brought to the attention that God had sovereignly adopted and predestined them for glory, He had purchased them by His blood, then the question is raised, how then shall we live? In so many words, and the answer is, walk in a manner worthy of your call. And included in the manner worthy of your call is all that application from the Word of God that preceded Paul. Honor your father and mother as one example of the moral law, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It applies today. And ask yourself if, you, if it applies in your own heart. This and every one of God's commands that stand emphatically so and reiterated, not rescinded, in the words of Jesus Christ. Finally, understand the commandment of God. We have a reference point from what Christ has already declared in Matthew chapter 5 related to the commandment of God. That was the section of Scripture that Jesus would no doubt call His hearers to remember in this moment. That was the passage where he said in verse 17, and you'll recall as I read, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, we relax as one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were relaxing the commandment of honoring your father and mother. They're saying you don't have to do it under these conditions. They're saying, well, it really doesn't apply in this case. While they might have been greatest in the culture of Israel, they would be, by Christ's declaration, least in the kingdom of heaven for doing such a thing. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, and notice this reference points, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whatever could Christ mean here? Well, Matthew 15 is so helpful in that regard. It's the kind of righteousness that is not content with hypocrisy. It's the kind of righteousness that shudders to alter God's word in any way by making excuses, by manipulating situations, and casting aspersions on the clarity and truth and the emphatic nature of Christ's declared commands in any way. This is the kind of righteousness that that exceeds the Pharisees. Not the kind of righteousness, and, and again, this is a question more of standard than it is track record. It is not necessarily the kind of righteousness that says, I can fully and have, thank you, kept all the law. That's not the kind of righteousness we're referring to. It's the kind of righteousness who sees the law for what it is, so therefore their pitiful attempts in that regard are considered only filthy rags, but necessary as after we come to Christ as worship before Him. How I love your law and your precepts and want to faithfully serve you, but I recognize I am futile, fallen, and frail in my humanity. If I have anything to offer you, Christ, it is the Spirit who works in me to will and to do of His good pleasure, your good pleasure, and nothing of my own merits. This is the kind of righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Scribes and the Pharisees are those types that say, well, God didn't really require that much. Because if he did, I mean, after all, I would have to leave this whole hobby I have over here. After all, I would have to basically be disowned by my whole family over there. Or I might have to consider what what I have decided to pursue by way of occupation. What else does Christ say in that regard? Anytime our pursuits come in conflict with his holy standards... He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, no one who has not hated family for my sake can be worthy of the kingdom of heaven. He says, those who are faithful and true have the kind of righteousness, as it were, that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, the ones who take up their cross and follow him. They lose their life so they might find it. And this is what Jesus preached This is what he emphasized. And the standard was not to be minimized so that we can count ourselves worthy. It was to be held in high esteem, to be sanctified as holy, so we might point to Christ by our sanctifying lives. Jesus says throughout this whole section, you have heard it said, but I say to you. In context there, we can infer, you have heard it said by the scribes and the Pharisees, "Ah, just don't kill anyone, and then you're not guilty of murder. But I say to you, What is the standard? If you harbor anger in your heart, you've committed the sin as far as God's standards go already. And so it goes for a few other examples where Jesus emphasizes the high regard for righteousness that the Holy Father has and that there is no compromise possible in that regard. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Scribes and Pharisees say, 
Yeah, just don't do the physical act. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. And so it goes with divorce, with oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, and so on. And so we find a reference point for the kingdom of God in this altercation with the Pharisees. And we find a point clarified that there is no minimal standard where we can finagle the law of God and then say, yeah, we're righteous, we measure up. No, the word as God declares it stands alone and apart from any manipulation of men and by it all men are judged. And again I say, the only way to measure up is through substitutionary atonement. Christ's law-keeping power credited to our account through that great exchange of His righteousness becoming ours. But before we come to that place, we must admit we cannot keep and have not kept God's holy law. We cannot be like the Pharisee and say, well, it must be less, I can do that. And on a curve, I think I can get through the gates of glory. Finally, this morning, number three, substitute. Three kingdom reference points clarified in com- in, in, uh, by conflict. Substitute for the sake of. What are the commandments of men? What is What was referred to here as a substitute for the universal norm, for the standard and the authority of the Word of God? Well, Jesus refers to it as the commandments of men and also the tradition of the elders. We find it again in context, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's the authority. Why do they they break this law uh, which holds weight in the Pharisees' eyes because it's the tradition that the elders gave? Why do they not wash their hands when they eat? He, Jesus, answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Tradition, in this case, is a substitute. It's an imposter. It's truth. It's masquerading. It's a lie masquerading as truth. It's an authority claim and a norm and a measure of goodness that is false. It justifies no one. It does not call people to the standard of holiness that God demands in any way, shape, or form, for the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, in verse 4, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, there it is again, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites... Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, teaching the word of man as if it were the word of God. Again, in our Isaiah text, these verses appear in context in 9 through 16. And Isaiah declares... Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, uh, drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, quote the prophets, and covered your heads, I should say parentheses, the seers. God has closed your eyes to the word of the prophets and he has covered your head to the authority and to the voice of the seers. Uh, The blind that sears is one who sees, a prophet again, a synonym. Verse 11, And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, and he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, 
I cannot read. What does this remind you of in the Gospels? He who has eyes to see or ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus said to some, it has not been given because their spiritual perception had not been open. It was as if the commandment of the Lord was sealed shut. But they had substituted it for something else. So when the word of the Lord came, they rejected it for other things that they had hung on to, like the tradition of the elders, like the commandments of men, like a false claim to truth. That was just an imposter. Verse 13, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. So you see here the context of Jesus' reference in Isaiah 29 includes surrounding scripture and instruction of the complete audacity to argue with God when it comes to ethics, when it comes to truth. It's akin to entertaining blindness and thinking you're wise to being illiterate and thinking that you have a Ph.D. education, to being perverse and thinking you're a paragon of virtue, to being presumptuous, as presumptuous as a clay pot who says, I made me. In fact, I made the man who made me. How foolish and stupid is that? That a clay pot would ever make that claim, I made the one who made me. This is the kind of blindness, audacity, and foolishness, and obstinance of heart for any who entertain a substitute righteousness, a false truth, a false claim to goodness outside of the commandments of God. The substitutes, the commandments of men do not measure up and indeed judge judge men worthy of God's wrath. In Matthew 15, there's two examples in the direct context of our text this morning, one is petty legalism and one is a kind of pietism. The disciples were angry with the, or the Pharisees were, and, and scribes were angry with the disciples because they did not wash their hands in the tradition of the elders. This was something added to God's law that was not necessary. And think of what that implies. That presupposes that those, the elders who added it to it, were the authors of law. God, Jehovah, is the only author of law. You cannot add something to God's completed canon. You cannot add something to God's law without presuming to have the same authority as Him. Thus, even though it might be a good idea to wash your hands, to do it because because the elders said so, or when the question is raised, who says the elders, as their own authority over God or apart from God, say so, That makes it a petty legalism, which is an act of apostasy to follow, not an act of worship. Also, there was this kind of pietism, this kind of uh, abdicating of responsibility for quote-unquote spiritual purposes. The word had said, honor your father and mother. 
And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. That's how seriously God takes this command for the covenant of family to watch out and to nurture, to care for, for the mutual love, protection, and care that is their obligation to fulfill. But these guys had found a way around it, they thought. Jesus says, verse 5, You say, if anyone tells his father's mother, what you would have gained from me has been given to God, and, therefore, er, and, and as such he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God. There's an Aramaic word in Mark's account called Corban. And the idea of Corban was, if you take this simple vow, this sort of uh, you know, formal statement, yeah, I was going to help my parents out, but it was given to God. And so you make a plea to a false spirituality to leave one of your family responsibilities. And this is disingenuous. It's rebellion against God, it's finagling with Scripture, and it's the kind of pietism that was forbidden by Jesus, emphatically so. He saw right through it. He said, the reason you're saying, I'm just going to give everything to God, is because you want to get out of your responsibility to serve me as I have declared, to take care of your parents if they have any dehabilitation in any way, to take care of your children, and so on. The family relationships and the obligations therein are not abrogated by some false plea to pietism. You can't just take a religious-sounding oath or justify or explain yourself or minimize your sin through all this loosey-goosey, spiritual-sounding explanation and get out of your duty before the Lord. Jesus sees right through all of that, and he calls the legalist and the false pietist to repentance repentance to the standard of the commandment of the Word of God. In closing and an application this morning, truly what we see here in the record and in Isaiah 29, 9-16 is the antithesis of Isaiah 29:23, which is sanctify my name. Instead of sanctifying God's name, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and anyone who judges themselves by another standard, promotes another standard, minimizes, belittle, adds to or subtracts from the law of God. Anyone who does that does not sanctify the name of God. They might sanctify an elder. They might sanctify a religious figure. They might sanctify a preconceived notion, a cultural norm of the day. They might sanctify their own experience, but they do not sanctify the Lord. If you grabbed a copy of the notes, I have a sentence at the end there with a blank in the middle. And it appears like this on the paper. For the sake of blank, I have made void the word of God. For the sake of blank, I have made void the word of God. Let us search our soul and ask if there's anything in our lives that fits into that blank. We can be just as hypocritical as a Pharisee saying, I'm not self-righteous and hypocritical. I don't claim to be powerful or know the whole word of God like those whitewashed tombs. But notice the principle here. It doesn't matter if your sin, your proclivity to error is the hubris of the Pharisees or just the obstinance of any other sort. The principle still stands. What do we substitute? For what the Pharisee, for the law of God, the way the Pharisees substitute the tradition of the elders or the commandment of men. What about pragmatism? I'm doing this basically because it works. 
don't know how many times if I listen to a conversation, I find myself justifying a certain decision or activity because in my mind, yeah, the Word of God not, doesn't necessarily sanction it, I suppose, but I just can't see any other way to get from point A to point B. So instead of taking up my cross and following Him, taking the chances and standing on Christ, I might make a pragmatic nuance. For the sake of pragmatism, I might make void the Word of the Lord in my confession and through my decisions. How about convention? Well, there's barely any churches who teach that anymore. Commonly, Christians say this. Does that matter? No. What matters is what does the Word of God say? Not convention, not culture, not majority opinion. Who can stand before the presence of God and say, almost everybody else in my church believed exactly the way I do, therefore I think I'm justified in holding this view? No one. For the sake of your peer group, will you make void the word of Lord? How about your comfort level? How about the experts? I'll include myself in this regard. Not that I want to be so presumptuous to to say I'm an expert in really anything, but if you look to a pastor to give the last word, unqualified, and if that pastor does not show you by the Scriptures, but is just giving you platitudes, his own wisdom and his opinion and his experience, it's kind of humorous, but I, one of my favorite quotes come from a guy, comes from another minister who said, when did preaching become pacing between ferns and cardigan sweaters talking about ourselves? When did preaching become pacing between ferns, you know, the, the nice uh, stage pleasing to the eye, and cardigan sweaters, you know, I'm really relevant, everyman, commoner, relating to you. When did preaching become pacing between ferns and cardigan sweaters talking about ourselves? In my experience, you know what that's like saying? Turn to my experience, chapter 3, verse 12, and let me say something with authority. Who says? Whose authority? My authority carries no weight. No weight. I hold myself accountable to refer to Scripture more than my own authority and experience. I might use myself from time to time as a negative example, more as a positive one. That comes from conviction. There might be areas in our own experience that are good examples, but they are only so because the Word of God says it. That way we can point to the Scriptures. I know people who are not fellowshipping in this church today because they stand on the authority of their experience. Well, in my experience, it has been blah, blah, blah. Why don't they fellowship in a Bible-preaching, believing church? Because they don't see the need. They trust their experience rather than the authoritative Word of God which speaks independently, self-attestingly, if you will, alone and apart from them. And I hope you and I both realize we need to sit under that declaration with regularity lest we, in our small-minded sinfulness, rely more on our experience than the Word of God. That's one of the reasons why we fellowship in a Bible-preaching, believing church. And that's why pastors, ministers need to be accountable not to preach from their own expertise and experience, but to preach what has been stated here already. It is a fearful thing to stand on any authority aside from Jesus Christ. For the sake of my experience, my successes, do I make void the Word of God. I think about this in the civil realm and the political realm. I hear justification for going to war in Crimea or something of the like, sanctions and that kind of thing, because uh, Putin does not stand with the governments of the 21st century. Uh, he's not on the right side of history. 
What are pundits saying when they use that kind of language? It's an authority claim. Who says? The 21st century. Oh, that carries a lot of weight. Who says? The right side of history. What ethical demand does that place on you? None. What does place an ethical demand on you? Jesus Christ and His authoritative word. These pundits, these politicians, they get up and say, we have a mandate to do this and that. And then listen for the because. If it's not followed with something biblical, you can see that they're standing on a false authority. They're substituting the 21st century, the right side of history, progressivism, or anything else, and in so doing, making void the Word of God. I don't care if it's environmentalism, tolerance, and civil rights. We hear this one all the time in the name of tolerance and civil rights. We must marry gays in this church or that church, or we are obligated to serve them in this way or that way through private business and the industry. Who says? Tolerance, civil rights. What claim does that make? None, I say none. For the sake of tolerance, will we make void the word of God? What is marriage according to Jesus Christ? The ultimate question that grounds all legitimate ethical changes, decisions, whether they be in the personal or the civil realm. We can go on and on. What do we justify our decisions by? Is it our safety, our national interests? Is it appearances? Is it the people around us? Is it financial gain? Is it hope of retirement? Is it the Supreme Court? Is it fashion? Let's line up some more toes here to stomp on. On Wednesday, we were talking on um, just about how culture has changed so dramatically. One of the most amazing things that, to me that illustrates the change in culture of late is to look at a picture of, say, Fort Lauderdale Beach in Florida in like circa 1900s and to look at a picture, which you really shouldn't do anyways, of a modern-day picture of that same beach. I'm telling you, just as a measure of fashion, externals, that picture of the cultural values is as dramatic as it just about could possibly be. Because there was a time in our history where virtually everyone did not consider themselves presentable in public unless almost all of their skin was covered. And now, now, almost everyone in those contexts doesn't consider themselves presentable in public unless almost all of their skin is revealed. Why do we do this? Well, there's a whole culture, there's a whole industry that parades before us reasons to dress the way we dress. For the sake of those fashion authorities, will I make void the Word of God? I'm just throwing this one in as kind of a nuance. It's a legitimate question. I don't mean to beat a legalistic hobby horse or anything like that, but I believe the Bible gives us good standards. I'll just name three very quickly for good dress. Humility and modesty comes from the book of Peter. It says, you know, not with golden braided hair and so on to impress others, but rather be the hidden person of the heart, gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Also, respecting the covenant, create the covenant fences for relationship. Certain things, our dress ought to reflect that certain things are appreciated within the covenant fences of husband and wife. And then within the covenant fences that are a little bit broader, we dress differently and naturally so. That's another principle that I believe can be established by the word of God. And you can go to the scriptures to affirm that. And also distinctions between man and woman. 
In Paul's uh, record, he says, there needs to be maintained a distinction between God-ordained order of men looking like men and women looking like women. Now, in these three standards, we can see by this measure that for the sake of culture, old norms today, celebrity, image, you know, our heroes, the silver screen, fashion or whatever, we have run, in many cases, uh, run the risk of making void the word of God because men look increasingly more like women, women look increasingly more like men, covenant fences get lower and lower and lower, and there is less and less and less humility and modesty even in the Christian church. And this is just another example that might hit close to home, but it might help us to recognize in a message like this, it's not the distant, pious, whitewashed Pharisee that stands in need of this word, but it could be me and the way I'm dressing before you even today. And it's a worthy question. And so as we consider these issues by application at the close of this message, I pray that all of us would search our heart that we would find clarity in the conflict that's demonstrated right here, that we would see that the commandment of God is where we should stand, that as we go back over these points that are clarified by this conflict, that we would see that no other construct of man stands immune from the judgment of God, but in only those who are under the blood of Christ. And secondly, the commandment of the Lord should be treasured, should be loved, meditated on, committed to memory, and it should, we should make it our practice to apply. And finally, we should pray for good discernment, good discernment to see if for the sake of anything else, for the sake of anything else, we may be in the way we're presenting ourselves and making decisions, making void the word of God in some way. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to lay our souls bare before the standard of your scriptures. I pray, Lord, if they have been handled correctly from this pulpit today, that you might use them in several ways to draw the unbeliever to repentance, to convict the believer, Lord, so that our sanctification process might be enhanced, Father, and that also, Lord, you would strengthen our assurance and confidence in the sufficiency of your holy scriptures that even in an age as confusing and dark as this, a word from our Savior, just a phrase, just a quote from Isaiah, can cut through the morass of deception and speak exactly the corrective word we need. Lord, I pray that you would hold us all accountable in that regard, and I pray that you would make us and shape us, Lord Jesus, by the standard of your holy word, into those who more faithfully and consistently sanctify you as Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord.